Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Dom, thanks for being here today. Well, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for yeah. having me. It's a treat to have you in the Diddy TV studios. It was an amazing set that you just played. Fantastic. Um, really, really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be able to share some of this music. Absolutely. How much of your time is spent studying people and situations? Oh, boy. Uh, most all of the time, you know, and especially when it comes to music, just because uh, there's so much that can be said about uh, the situations that uh, that music is created around, also the people who create that music, and then why they do it. And I feel like that's something that makes the music all the more intriguing so I spend a lot of time thinking about that and then as I travel around all over the world I get to do a lot of people watching and uh, sometimes in active ways other times just in passive ways because once you you've gone everywhere from the United States all the way to Malaysia and Australia and all these different places uh, you can't help but uh, view and and just enjoy the the variety of uh, ways that people live and dress and eat and think about things and then also how we're all the same yeah have you always been a curious person oh yeah from the get-go yeah um you know i i was never much of a traveler until i was uh, in college and then i decided that i really wanted to try traveling and, and try uh, seeing what the whole world was about i'd spent so much time in arizona up until about 23 years old and it was the first time I went to a national poetry slam. I used to slam poetry, and I went to uh, Minneapolis, and I went to Chicago, and I thought that that was just wonderful to be able to travel out there and see uh, see what other places in the country looked like. And then as um, I got interested in the, um, the African-American banjo tradition, that got me out to North Carolina, and then uh, from there I went to the whole world. So before you left Arizona, you say you stayed there for the first 23 years. Yeah. That curiosity and that observant, or, uh, you know, your powers of observation, do you remember how that was applied back then in Arizona and oh, your boy. surroundings? Well, I mean, you know, I grew up with a, a pretty, I, I would say, I don't want to say unexciting, but just a pretty straight-ahead upbringing, my mm. My parents wanted to raise my brother. I have one older brother. My my brother and I up to get our education and to be able to be uh, uh, upstanding citizens in the United mm -hmm. States. And so uh, we did all the normal things, uh, baseball and we swim team and all that stuff. I was in the marching band when I was in high school and, and the choir and, and just kind of did just sort of normal stuff. and. And it was when I was about 16 was when I decided I really wanted to start learning the guitar and the harmonica and then started studying the different types of music. So it, just, it started just kind of uh, uh, snowballing from over there. It, uh, at first it would be going to the library and, and looking up 
different films on music as well as different albums. So I got interested in trying to find performance films. And, of course, this is the time before the Internet. So you really had to find a VHS tape or a DVD of a different performance. And so that was kind of my obsession for a long time, was trying to figure out uh, how the records were made and then also how the people looked when they were making the records or they were performing the music. And so that was something that was uh, an interest to me that, that stayed with me the whole time. That's amazing. When did the Lomaxes come into the picture for you? That was probably, I would probably say that was getting close to college was when I started getting into the Lomaxes. Uh, I went to Northern Arizona University for college, and they had this excellent LP collection in the library. They had like maybe five CDs, but the LP collection was a kind of like a government-issued like 1940s, 50s, and 60s LP collection. So they had all the Library of Congress recordings as well as many of the essential folk music recordings from the 1960s going up into the late 70s. So uh, for me, I just over my four years, I, I wrote out a big list that included probably about, I don't know, something like uh, 2,000, 2,500 records. And I just one by one went through all these records that seemed interesting to me. And that got me in touch with a lot of different music, uh, everything from the wonderful uh, Newport Folk Festival albums that Vanguard Records put out. Um, there was the Lomaxes, and that was uh, not just the um, African-American field recordings, but also the field recordings that Alan Lomax did with Peter Kennedy out in the UK. So I got familiar with uh, English and Scottish and Irish music and uh, Spanish music, Italian music. Um, a lot of Native American music that the Library of Congress recorded, um, uh, folkways recordings, which again I'm I'm proud to be a part of now. Um, I I got into that. They had a Jellero Morton's Library of Congress sessions over there, so then I was able to think about jazz as not just an art music, like usually now they talk about as kind of a high art form, but to think about jazz as a folk music and being based in folk tradition and then evolving into an art music, that was something that I became aware of all, all through college, just record after record, you know. <laughs> so many directions we could go there, so many <laughs> topics, but... You know, flashing forward from you as this young guy studying and researching and gaining an understanding of global music, really, uh, you, fa you flash forward and joined a band, found, found some like-minded people that you could collaborate with uh, in Carolina Chocolate Drops, had some great success, mm -hmm. and flash forward even more, and now you're, you know, putting out your own records. Uh, you've got Black Cowboys out now on Smithsonian Folkways, as you just mentioned. I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about that record. Oh, of course. Well, you know, going from being a record collector and a fan and someone who was uh, doing music uh, casually but not as a professional, uh, I had picked up a lot of different songs and a lot of different ideas, and I got a sp to spend a lot of time analyzing the music casually without being in the public eye. And I, I'm really glad now that I see how many people are in the, con the public eye constantly during their whole musical evolution, I was kind of glad that I got to spend 10, 15 years on yeah. my own without... Pub, put the public knowing anything about all the different iterations I went through. And um, I was, once I started uh, going out to North Carolina and started the chocolate drops, and then we continued to build up, and then even in my own uh, solo activities, I. I saw the power of being able to present the old-time styles because that was something that I think on top of just the songs themselves, there are styles that, that reflect different communities that mm -hmm. I felt that that was very powerful. And I guess it was uh, close to about 10 years ago, I was going back to Arizona to visit family, 
you know, for, uh, I think it was just around the holidays for Christmas or whatnot. And somewhere around the petrified forest, I went to a gift shop and found a copy of a book called The Negro Cowboys, which was published in the mid-60s. And that talked about how one in four cowboys who settled the West were African-American cowboys. And so being someone of African-American descent as well as Mexican-American descent, I, I thought that was a very powerful statement, having not seen a lot of mainstream representation of black cowboys. Of course, there's like, you know, there's movies like Blazing Saddles, for example, mm -hmm. has a black cowboy in it. Uh, also, um, uh, Mario Van Peebles did his movie Posse in the early 90s that came out when I was growing up, or Bucking the Preacher. And then recently, Quentin Tarantino did his two wonderful Western uh, movies, Django Unchained and then uh, The Hateful Eight, which feature African-American cowboys. And, and so, as I started thinking about this subject, I started picking up books casually at first, and then I started finding out about um, the Lomax collection, uh, and particularly how John Lomax's research into cowboys featured black cowboys a lot when he was out there trying to find the songs. Uh, of course, John Lomax came from the school of thought that songs were anonymous and that they didn't belong to the performer, and they were part of a collective pool of folk culture that that once it rises up to the top over 100 years or whatnot, it's a folk song. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't be until his son Alan came along that he would really um, glorify the performer themselves. And so you find these very interesting stories of black cowboys on the periphery with John Lomax uh, when he's researching his book, uh, Cowboy Ballads and Frontier Songs. And, and of course, later on when he focused on uh, African-American folk songs, that it's like a natural extension that goes from the cowboy songs. So there's between that and there was also another fellow who uh, published the first book on cowboy songs, a fellow named Jack Thorpe, that uh, I became aware of later on and in his autobiography, Jack Thorpe talks about his introduction to cowboy songs was when he started becoming a cowboy on the range, and he, um, he was drawn to the sound of these black cowboys playing banjo around the campfire, singing uh, songs about their, their cutting horses, which is one of the types of horses you have when you're working on the range. And it moved him so much that he wanted to collect these songs, and then he self-published the very first book on Cowboys, which was in 19, uh, 1908, I believe it was. And so black cowboys have been kind of at the, uh, the foundation of, of cowboy song documentation from the get-go. So it was something that, as I went along, this story became more elaborate, and then it became a very deep, deep well of culture and songs. And so uh, for me, I, I wanted to put together what would be the first comprehensive introduction to black cowboys. And so I went to a lot of different sources and I brought all these different pieces together into one place because I found that there hadn't been a black cowboy folk album. Um, I wanted to kind of have the sort of the classiness of like Marty Robbins gunfighter ballads and trail songs. Of course, Marty Robbins is, uh, he grew up, you know, 30 miles down from where I grew up. And, um, but I didn't want to be quite as a, uh, as flashy and as polished as something like Marty Robbins. And so I wanted to try to get something that would be a little bit of singing cowboy, but also would be a little bit of the folk cowboy, of course, bringing in the blues and those aspects. And so I, it was, uh, it was quite, a, quite a task. It took me about two years to put the whole album together, get my information, and, and write the liner notes, which are 40 pages. And, wow. 
and uh, but it it turned out really well. Smithsonian Folkways also did a an amazing job putting it together. And you ended up with eighteen songs, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Is there anything that you weren't able to include in the liner notes that you had hoped to be able to put in? Oh boy, a whole bunch. Was it um, tough narrowing one, down. Well, it was. It, once I had my narrative, I ended up focusing on the narrative of cowboys transitioning into Pullman porters because I found that that was something that would be immediate that people could relate to in terms of modern African American culture. So I, I wanted to create a bridge between those cultures, but. Um, Part of uh, two of the thing, main things that I wasn't able to put in there was uh, the elaborate history of African Americans and Native American culture and the mixture, like, um, for example, the state of Oklahoma. When they first opened it up for people to make claims on the land, um, there was a huge uh, African American population that, were, that did a land rush, and they tried to make Oklahoma the first all-black state. And they, they weren't successful, of course, but when you think of things like uh, Black Wall Street, which was in Tulsa, Oklahoma, these sort of uh, towns grew out of this land rush. Um, also, uh, the Cherokee tribe and several of the what they call the five civilized nations, which are you'd have to read about that to unpack it. Um, but the, the Cherokee Nation, they had sided with the Confederacy because the Confederacy had told them that they would get their land back if uh, the Confederacy won. And so, of course, when the Confederacy, Confederacy didn't win during the Civil War, uh, they forced all of the Native American tribes that had slaves to force those slaves into their tribes to become members of the tribe. So that led to this mixture of culture within several of the Native American tribes as they moved to uh, the reservation during the Trail of Tears. And and it's this very elaborate story of all the different iterations of how the tribes were treated and how they they mixed together with African American culture. But I couldn't really get deep into any of that stuff in the notes because it was just such a huge digression that... I'll just have to make another album that speaks just about that. There's a great book uh, by William Lauren Katz called Black Indians, though, that speaks about this particular history. So there was that, and then um, I met a a cowboy singer by the name of Don Edwards out at the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering in Elko, Nevada, and he told me about how when he met a lot of the old black cowboys, they they called themselves black vaqueros and not black cowboys. So the history of the vaquero, the original Mexican cowboy, that itself unleashes a, a huge history of uh, the western part of the United States being a part of Mexico, which was a part of uh, the Spanish Empire. And then, of course, there was a time when the Spanish Empire had left and then the Catholic Church was the, the main way that Mexico had funded their their um, their government and then when the church left and Mexico had their own sort of uh, run-in with uh, the United States as they were coming in. So it's like a, it's like a 250-year history that um, leads to these Mexican vaqueros being there when the African-American and the Anglo cowboys come from the East Coast and the mixture becomes the cowboy uh, culture that we know now as the American culture. But it's, yeah. again, it was... It was, it was such a huge digression to even like touch upon this subject that I I didn't even try to do it. I I talked about it and kind of like referenced it in a couple of lines, but that was just two of many many uh, stories that I couldn't tell. Could you just tell me a little bit about the album artwork? 
Oh, sure. When I went to the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering, after my first performance at the gathering, there was a fellow who tapped me on the shoulder named Willie Matthews. And he said, he said I'm Willie Matthews. I'm a Western artist. I want to paint the cover to your record. And I didn't have a record or anything at that time. So I was like, okay, guy, you know. <laughs> and it was almost like a movie after that because he, he told me that he wanted to take a few pictures of me and he was going to paint a picture based off of these pictures. So he was like, well, meet me for lunch. We'll go off and we'll, we'll take some pictures and then I'll, I'll paint this cover. And it was almost like a movie where everybody's like, Willie Matthews is going to paint you. Willie Matthews, go ahead and get Willie Matthews to paint you. And sure enough, uh, that ended up making the cover. He, he just uh, did an amazing job and that's a a watercolor painting. And he's a part of a, uh, an elaborate sort of, uh, I guess, hippie, art world uh, artist uh, culture that that's uh, in line with because he did a lot of work for Dan Hicks and the Hot Licks in San Francisco oh, yeah. early on and so he's part of that sort of world of where you have like a Quicksilver messenger service and all those really elaborate amazing covers so oh, yeah. it kind of uh, was a real treat to have that being a big fan of that style of work so there was that part uh, I knew I wanted to get historical photos together, and there were there are quite a few of them, from Nat Love to uh, Bill Pickett and uh, Stagecoach Mary Fields, who was a oh, an African American first African American woman to deliver the mail out west, and and just uh, Henry Ragtime Texas Thomas, who I do his his song Charming Betsy, so uh, one of the first photos that's been published of him, I have that in the liner notes, and. I knew that the historical photos were going to be one thing, but then I decided to do a session with uh, photographer Timothy Duffy, who works with the Music Maker Relief Foundation. And uh, through the years I've known him, uh, I did a lot of tintype photography with, uh, with my previous group, the Chocolate Drops, and Tim got interested in doing tintypes through that, and then he just developed his, his uh, really amazing style of tintype photography. So it eventually evolved into this gigantic Deerdorf 11 by 14 tintype camera. And um, I, just, I just knew that I needed to do some old-timey cowboy tintypes. And so there are several that are featured without, with, throughout the album featuring myself and some of the, the session musicians I worked with. And then also one of my wife uh, to depict the, the black woman of uh, the song Black Woman. Mm-hmm. And so w- we mixed all those things together in one place. And so it ended up being a really neat juxtaposition of the modern and the old at the same time. Speaking of the modern and the old, I'm wondering if you could describe how the stories and the narratives that you've chosen apply to the contemporary African-American consciousness and how people might relate to that in your mind. Oh, sure. Well, when it comes to contemporary African-American culture, one of the things that I found so amazing about this story or this whole time period Mm -hmm. is that it's a time between emancipation and uh, the First World War. And it's a time where you see after the slaves are freed, people did things and they really were able to build brand new lives for themselves. And then 
as the turn of the century came in, that's when we started having the very strict segregation that we see during the civil rights era. Mm -hmm. But to be able to see some of these stories, I think it gives a broader sense of African-American culture. And of course, uh, now we're, we're in a time when American identity is kind of in, in flux in its own sort of way. There's a new wave of people coming in. There's new technologies that are coming into play. And it's really giving people a lot of information and people are reacting to that information in a variety of different ways that I feel that it, this story kind of gives a sense that this isn't the first time that we've had these conversations. And also with Western culture, I think um, on the ground level, uh, when you live out West, you understand it's a multi-ethnic culture, mm -hmm. but it's kind of the unspoken rule, you know, like... Um, I, I know growing up it's uh, in Arizona, it's never been just a black and a white thing. It's There's also been, uh, there's been Mexicans that are around, so that's a whole other part of the, the story. There's also um, Native American tribes that are around. And then even uh, whiteness breaks down. You know, you have different European immigrants that are in the West Coast that are from, from all over the place, from German right. and Italian and and uh, uh, Polish and Swedish, you know, it's kind of all over the place. So in that way, I wanted to also show that sort of inclusive idea that, and, and inclusive in the way that everybody doesn't have to get along inclusive, mm -hmm. but inclusive that everybody lives out here. And especially when you're in the desert, you know, you're spread out enough to where you have to kind of, you have to depend on your neighbors no matter what, because there just aren't as many people out there. Uh, and that's something that you find, especially in the older culture, as people are settling these new parts of the West, it, you know, they didn't have the the luxury of saying, well, I don't like you, you stay over here, you know, and you might have someone that might be a hermit off to the side, but uh, for the most part, if uh, you have a group of people who have settled a single part, uh, plot of land, they all have to kind of work together in some sort of way to be able to get that land to elevate to where it's a township or then later a city so that was something I also wanted to put out there was um, there's a great quote that um, uh, a scholar Mike Searless uh, spoke about that I included in the liner notes where he said if you think of the West as the birthplace of America uh, if you think of it as only a story about white Americans it gives you a sense that everyone else is an interloper but if you think about African-American cowboys, Native American cowboys, and Mexican cowboys being a part of it, it automatically changes the conversation into one that says that uh, the United States has always been a multicultural place from the get-go. It's not something that we just invented recently. So you seem like a really self-sufficient type of guy. I was wondering if that applied to your own wanderlust and uh, if you ever went out into national parks or into remote places on your own time and sort of tried to relive your own personal, or to, to live out your own kind of personal journey like a cowboy sort of deal, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it was interesting. It's worked twofold now. Uh, at first, since I've traveled all over the country over the past several years, touring and playing music, I'm familiar with many of the towns that they talked about in, uh, in all these old books. And so... It, at first, then, I, had, I got an appreciation for all the towns, for what they were, because, of course, 
I traveled and I thought it was great, but then to read about each of the towns and say, oh yeah, I know, I know where Cheyoming, Cheyenne, Wyoming is, you know, wow, isn't that something that there's a, you know, I found out that Cheyenne, Wyoming was one of the first uh, integrated towns of the West, which is something that I never would have thought about uh, just going there. Mm -hmm. But then once I started to read about it, there was just this very elaborate history that began to unfold. So that was the first part of it. And then once I was aware of it, uh, especially in 2016, I happened to do several tours that had me crisscrossing the country about four or five times. Mm -hmm. So then I was actively looking for the places. So like, for example, when you go into Nebraska, for example, it's a long strip of land to get to Colorado. But each stop along the way, you find a memorial for Boot Hill, you find a memorial for um, Buffalo Bill Cody, and you find a, a, you just find all of these Western m uh, monuments and memorials along the way. And to stop off at them, then you start realizing, wow, this is very interesting. Or the Lincoln Highway, for example, in Nevada, it was one of the first ways you could get across the country. And uh, it just is a very beautiful, long strip of land that's out in the middle of the desert. And to learn about the history of the Lincoln Highway is really something. Or even the Pony Express, for example. Uh, the Pony Express was the first way that the East Coast and the West Coast could communicate with each other. But it was right before telegram telegraphs were invented. So that's part of the reason they invented telegraphs was to communicate between the coasts. And so... Right before that, what they ended up doing is they hired riders who were kind of like small guys who could ride horses very fast, and they basically had all of these stops along the way. So you just would run your horse ragged, jump on the next horse, and keep riding it all the way until you made it, you know, made it out west. And, of course, in the telegraph, that kind of, you know, stopped that. But it was, I think it was... 18 months was how long the Pony Express went for. A very short period of time, hmm. but with the excitement of the United States being on the cusp of technological advancement. And then, of course, the railroads came in after that, and that was another step of progress in the United States. It's a very, it's a very uh, fascinating era for just exciting adventure of modernity, of mm -hmm. uh, just progress. But, of course, at the same time, there are these very horrific stories of racism and uh, discrimination and just all these different clashes between people who have never been in touch with each other at all. It's a, it's a it's constantly fascinating uh, era, between, especially between the 1880s and, let's say, 1920. It's just... Uh, <laughs> I barely touched upon any of that stuff in the album, but to read about it all and be able to kind of fill in... Uh, the gaps in history, um, it's, it's really been something. So I, I have a bigger appreciation for uh, the different towns I go to when I travel. So that, it's been kind of twofold with that. I was thinking about the album and how you, uh, you, you do songs like uh, Home on the Range, and I'm wondering how you approach a song like that that's so a part of the American consciousness and how you make it your own. I mean, where do you even begin? Well, that one was interesting. I knew that I wanted it to be a part of the album, uh, because um, John Lomax, he recorded a um, a black cook in San Antonio, uh, and then he had the that cylinder recording that he made transcribed into sheet music, and that sheet music became the Home on the Range everybody knows now. Mm -hmm. So it's it's a black variant of Home on the Range, which was a a poem that had been published 
previously, and that variant became the, the national Western anthem we know now. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted that to be a part of it. That and Goodbye Old Pain are kind of the cornerstones of the album because they both have stories very similar. And so with Home on the Range, I was trying to think of how to approach it, because of course, with it being a standard, mm -hmm. you got to really figure out how to be familiar enough so that people can get into the, the song, and then also how do you figure out how to get a creative arrangement of it. So for me, I, I looked back at a bunch of recordings, including the Riders in the Sky, um, Don Edwards, um, uh, Peter Rowan, and then I started looking into the older singers, um, and I found a great recording of one of the first singing cowboys, Jules Verne Allen. And he sang this melody that was completely different than any version I'd ever heard of Home on the Range. So I applied his, his melody to the version that I decided to adapt. And he kind of had a, you know, he did a... Because usually when it's sung, it's like, "Oh, give me a home where the buffalo, uh, where the buffalo roam, mm -hmm. where the deer and the antelope play." So he's saying, "Oh, give me a home where the buffalo roam, where the deer and the antelope play." And so he sang the chorus differently too. He did, "Home, home on the range, where the deer and the antelope play." Where seldom is heard is a discouraging word, and the skies are not cloudy all day. But when I started learning the song, I knew that nobody was going to be able to go for that chorus. So I had to do Home, Home on the Range, because that's the most familiar part that people know. And then I kept the rest of the chorus that Jules Verne Allen sang. I noticed And that. so, but I knew that when doing the arrangement, uh, authenticity kind of had to fall to the wayside from Jules Verne Allen just because it's such a familiar song that everybody would be like, he's singing it wrong, you know, even though... <laughs> right out of the gate, it, at least. Exactly, cause it'd be, it's, it, because there's just a way people knew it. So that's kind of how I work with, especially with traditional stuff. You've got to find what's familiar to people and what people are going to link to. And then also... I put my own little spin on it as I picked a, a nice key, E-flat, which is a is a good key for me for ballads and whatnot. And, and I wanted to keep it really straight ahead and make it very stark so that I could uh, showcase the lyric because it has such a beautiful lyric. And I, I included the verse about the red man was pressed from this part of the West and he's likely no more to return, which a lot of people tend to take out of the hmm. the uh, their versions of Home on the Range because it kind of... You know, you, you shouldn't say red man, but in the context of singing, uh, singing that song, I wanted to just show the beauty of that original lyric. Hmm. And then for a song like Old Chisholm Trail, I notice how it's the last song on the album, but it delivers, you delivered it with a sort of aggression in your vocals that doesn't take place on the rest of the, on the, rest of the album. And it just comes across as sort of a, you know, you describe it. I wonder why that was the last song and why it had this edginess to it, maybe. Well, you know, funny enough, I, I try my best to replicate the the field recording that uh, that I'm going off of the John Lomax's field recording of uh, Moses Clear Rock Platt. Um, and when I first heard that particular version of Old Chisholm Trail, I was just drawn to it by the way that it kind of reminded me of, like, uh, real heavy soul and... And uh, even like an early hip hop in a sort of way where I was going to say the, the same thing. 
and, you know, and, and so that was something where I tried to, I took what I heard in that field recording and applied what I knew as a person who's grown up with hip hop in the background and with all, all these other styles of music mm -hmm. within there. So I tried to modernize it just a little bit. Um, I also did what John Lomax did, which was take us, I just grabbed a, you know, Old Chisholm Trail has like a, hundreds of lyric because it was a song that people could just make up lyrics as they went down the trail. So I just grabbed a, a list of the lyrics and I, I started piecing out the ones that I thought would tell the best story. And so I took a little bit of the field recording, then I took the lyrics and I found the lyrics that I thought would tell the best story. And also as the last song on the record, one of the things that I find so fascinating about the Black Cowboys uh, is that so many of them were the best at what they did. Hmm. And that was because socially there wasn't a lot of room to be mediocre. Mm -hmm. So, And also, coming straight from slavery, many of these black cowboys had been working so hard in slavery times that they were in peak physical condition. So they just came out and they just started kicking ass right out, <laughs> right out the gate. And it's, it's, it's really a fascinating... Uh, it's a fascinating part of the story as well, because this also tells you a lot about the civil rights era as well, because a lot of what they fought for was moving African-American people up to first-class citizenship compared to second-class citizenship. And the, the stories of the West, it's riddled with these, um, this one particular point, because no matter how respected you became in the community, especially in the, the pre-civil rights era, you were still a second-class citizen. And to elevate a black person to the level of a white person was just socially not acceptable at all. And so it's a very nuanced sort of thing where they'll talk about black cowboys, but they won't mention their race. Mm. They'll mention respected member of the community, but they won't mention the race. Just because that's that's not really what was acceptable. But people are people, and there was, you know, uh, w they talk about uh, the pioneer spirit, which is sort of the sort of notion that if everybody settled the land together, there was a respect that everybody was paid because they were a pioneer that was there when, you know, we, we made this town. And that included African-American people. But again, ideologically, that would change when you wrote that down on paper. So with Old Chisholm Trail, it was that sort of idea where I wanted to have that as the last word. And especially that, um, that really hard yodel, too. Because, uh, you know, traditionally, I guess, uh, cowboys did not yodel a lot until the singing cowboy era came in when you had uh, Jimmy Rogers and, mm -hmm. and uh, Gene Autry and Tex Ritter and guys like that really bringing in the yodel. So I featured two yodels on the album. There's, of course, the kind of lighter yodel in um, Home on the Range. But then on Old Chisholm Trail, there's like a hard yodel. And this is how Moses Clearrock Platt did his yodel. He did And that's kind of a, again, when you think of like soul music, you think of like that kind of hard like mm, when, you're, when you're singing it. So that's what I wanted to present within the, that arrangement of Old Chisholm Trail. And of course, with Black Woman ending up being the first one, when you put a CD in, you know, this also, uh, to tell you a little bit about how I sequence this, the albums, when it's on a CD, I try to sequence it so that when you get to the end of that CD, it links right back to the first track. 
and making it so that you have an, an easy transition back so that you might want to listen to the album a second time after the first time goes mm -hmm. through. So it's kind of an alpha and omega with the black woman where he's saying, uh, you know, he's talking about leaving the black woman and going out west to Texas. Then the last statement is that I'm the best damn cowboy that ever, that ever was born. And then it links back to that story again of leaving. With them also being the two acapella songs, it felt like a good alpha and omega on mm -hmm. there. That's amazing. I'd like to transition a little bit into talking about your instruments. Um, you came out earlier with some bones and... Uh, you know, had me thinking about, I, I'm Jewish, and recently we had a Passover Seder, and I don't know if you've ever participated in one of those before, no. but we have a part where we do uh, a song that's an old Hebrew traditional song called Dayenu, and it kind of has a 2-4 sort of style beat to it mm -hmm. where you kind of clap along. Uh, this year, for the first time ever, I decided to try my hand at playing some spoons with it. It went really well. It was a hit at the table. Everyone was happy. Uh, I'm listening to your album, you know, researching and thinking about today and of course I thought it was spoons that I was listening to on the recordings and so I was going to ask you about the history of spoons about where that came from but instead I'm going to talk about bones because you surprised me and I didn't know bones were even a thing well you know bones and spoons they're very interesting instruments because they're these sort of percussion instruments that grow out of uh, where they're like on the fringes, you know, mm -hmm. like um, bones are an instrument that I guess traditionally have always been sort of like a um, a guide to get the younger ones into rhythm so that then they can apply that to their, their instruments as they become adults. Mm -hmm. And spoons is kind of the same sort of way where it's right on the fringes, but it's this beautiful rhythm instrument that adds the extra percussion when when you have someone that's that's playing it. You know, I talk about it in my workshops a lot. Um, that it's 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 a, also an instrument that there's no gray area. You're yeah. either like really good at it or you're just okay at it. And <laughs> people will just ask you to stop, or they'll say, "Please bring bring it bring it on more more," you know. Right. And uh, it's a when I started playing the bones, it was right when I went to North Carolina. There was a, a lady I met at the Mount Airy Fiddlers Convention. I was out there, and she saw the way that I was playing the guitar and the rhythm that I had on the guitar, and she knew that I had to learn the bones. And so she just basically approached me and said, you've got to learn these bones. It's part of the tradition. You've got to, you've got to learn them. And she taught me how to play them, and, and that was where I started. And then from there I started, to, um, I started to look for other types of bones playing. And you find them really all over the place. They, they, I mean, you find them all the way back into ancient Egypt. They have them on the hieroglyphs and... And you see them in uh, Irish music. Um, you also see them in the old-time blackface minstrel shows as well. So there's just a lot of different sources of where the bones have gone. But being a percussion instrument, I mean, it, it's something that's just kind of universal for people love rhythm, you know. Mm -hmm. And so uh, for me, I just um, started applying them. And, and that particular song, Cindy Gal, I... I was really trying to figure out a way to play the bones in a solo setting because they actually work best in an ensemble where you have a band going and then you add the percussion on top of that. And uh, and so I was just struggling to try to figure out how to play them solo because I, I, I tried a couple of different times to just play the bones and do kind of like rudiments and rhythms, but I found it didn't really go over. There just needed to be enough melody to hold it together. So following my cues from people like um, D. Ford Bailey and, uh, and Gwen Foster, who were two old-time harmonica players. Um, 
I, I decided to do a, a little uh, harmonica arrangement with the rhythm bones, and, and that particular song, Cindy Gal, is one that I learned from Joe Thompson, who was one of the reasons I moved to North Carolina in the first place. He was an old-time African-American uh, fiddle player who lived until uh, 2012. He lived to be 93, so I got a chance to spend a lot of time with him and learn his songs. He's a big part of your narrative. Oh, what I've yeah. Gathered. No, absolutely. I mean, it's from when I met him, at first I had been searching for this sort of like black folk music style. It like it was in the crevices of all the different blues singers and country singers that I was I was getting into and I saw that they had this this other type of music that preceded their country music or blues music and I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was. Um, it just would be maybe one song or two songs, like Charlie Patton, for example, has a lot of blues songs, but he has these string band fiddle numbers in his recorded repertoire that, you know, to read about it, there just no one was ever writing anything about it. It just was, oh yeah, these were these other types of songs. Mm -hmm. And when I met Joe Thompson and, and found out that there was an African-American string band tradition that uh, that goes all the way back to the the first days of, of African-Americans being brought over from Africa uh, and the introduction of the banjo into American culture. And then that banjo, um, taking all those early elements, became the, uh, the indigenous instrument of the United States and the southern United States. All of a sudden, it gave me a whole new perspective. And Joe Thompson, when, and it was just watching Joe Thompson play his fiddle and sing uh, John Henry that made me say, wow, okay, that's what it is. This string band music is the core of it all. And then all these other things are just offshoots of this early string band music. And so it was a very powerful experience to be able to meet Joe. Wow. Yeah, you had touched on how blues and, and, and soul music and jazz became sort of the popularized, maybe through the recording industry growth and everything, but you're finding these, these offshoot genres that existed prior, and it's, it's really interesting that you've been able to, you know, base your whole career really around these, these forgotten narratives maybe and bring them to light. It's fascinating. Well, it's one of the things that, that was, I was so glad that, well, at first I was just going to try to do music and not go to college. But mm -hmm. my my parents said you got to just go you got to go to college. And I'm glad that they did that because it it allowed me to understand that uh with getting my degree in English to learn how to read books, critically think about things and knowing the power of writing it down. Mm -hmm. That was something that was it became very clear to me right off the bat that um there was a lot of information that to be able to reanalyze the books that have already been written and to be able to connect the histories that were in these different schools of thought was a very important piece of uh, the modernization of this music going forward into the 21st century. And so that was something that I was really, um, yeah, I was really, uh, I'm still very passionate about. So it's been, it's been neat to still find new things, even even after the years that I've been doing this, to still find new stories that can be told and to connect new new parts of the traditions together so that um, not just for me, but for anybody who might look into these subjects, they might be able to find something new. Like even we were talking about old Chisholm Trail, you know, mm -hmm. one of the things that, that dawned on me as I was writing the liner notes was that John Lomax went into the prisons and he, and Clear Rock Platt was a fellow who was a prisoner. 
and just to even know that there was there's a, a street culture and a prison culture within a lot of these early work songs and cowboy songs, that's something that relates directly to to rap music and hip hop is that there's a, a street credibility and there's also uh, 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 the culture of mass incarceration that's within the background. And to me, that was something that I realized hadn't necessarily been brought together in one place, even though it doesn't take a lot to bring the two things together because they're different schools of thought. But even something like that is just a, a small way that, um, you know, you can just create a, an understanding that, uh, I don't know, might have been there before, might not have been there before, but it's, um, music is like that. It's very elusive. Hmm. So you've worked with Fat Possum Records, mm -hmm. None Such Records, and now are working with... Uh, also music maker, um, but now you're working with Smithsonian Folkways. How's that, and could you tell me, you know, what your role is there and how that's all going for you? Well, so far it's been pretty amazing. Like, uh, one of the things that I didn't realize when I started the project two years ago is that Folkways was getting ready to celebrate its 70th anniversary. So as this album has come out, this is the lead album for Smithsonian Folkways' 70th anniversary. And that's been pretty amazing. Um, I've been a fan of Smithsonian Folkways for many years. And also, there was, there's an African-American legacy series that has been a part of Smithsonian Folkways for several years. And it was sort of the lead-up for the National Museum of African-American History and Culture, which is now open in D.C. Hmm. And uh, I had known about the series, and when I was developing the Black Cowboys idea, I just knew that Smithsonian Folkways was going to be one of the places where they weren't going to ask me to really modernize and dress up the music. And so that was something that was appealing to me. And also, with the African American Legacy series, I also knew that was going to be a, an excellent place to have the first comprehensive Black Cowboys record was going to be on this series. So when I came into it, I told them right off the bat what I was looking for. And they were just so generous, and they've been so amazing to say, great, you've got the ideas. We want to make sure that your vision is happening on this record. And so that's that's been something that, most times when you join a label, that's not the first thing they say. They kind of want they kind of want you to go through the, the trials of here's our system, go ahead and do our system first, and then you know once you're successful with that, then you know then we can talk. We can we can get more creative. And you see a lot of musicians that that uh, have been on labels for a long time. They they get the chances to do that sort of stuff and really spread their wings after they've shown their initial success. But uh, Smithsonian Folkways, it was really wonderful to be able to uh, just present the idea and that they 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 were into it and then they've they've uh, been very encouraging uh, bringing the project forward and so there was so there was that aspect of it um, also uh, to know that I'm connected with the Smithsonian Institute which is such a prestigious um, institution in Washington DC that's a very amazing uh, piece of the puzzle you know it also led me to uh, I'm starting an internship program over at the National uh, Museum of uh, American History over in the Smithsonian to teach young folk singers to craft their own narratives. Uh, and so that's something that kind of came with uh, with the project. And it's it's just been, uh, it's been really just uh, overwhelming, you know. I, I was just at the 70th anniversary for Smithsonian Folkways, and everyone that had been associated with Smithsonian Folkways over the past 70 years uh, 
came out to this event. So it was like um, the the Guthries were out, the Seegers, and then uh, Lead Belly's family was all there, and, and uh, John Cohen from the New Lost City Ramblers was out there. Phil Wiggins, Stephen Wade. I mean, it was just a Amazing. a whole cavalcade of uh, <laughs> of folks that have been involved with the the company were were out there. It, so it's it's been it's been truly a treat, you know. It kind of brought me full circle as well, having started out as being a fan, as just someone who was reading about these stories. Now to be a part of those stories and to be able to help the company as well move into the 21st century because of course they've wanted to expand the label and also take it back to uh, Moses Ash's original vision of creating a mosaic of sound of all different sounds all over the world. You know, um, a lot of people don't know this. The speculation, the folklore around it is that Moses Ash met Albert Einstein when he was a kid and Albert Einstein encouraged him to think about creating records so that you could get all the different sounds that aren't the commercial sounds into one room and and the power of being able to have that that um, that multitude of sound you know because of course they have everything from music to um, you know famously the uh, North American Tree Frogs album you know which is <laughs> for biologists who want to have those sounds great you know? to sleep too. <laughs> amazing well other than the pony express how can people find your album well they can go on to smithsonian folkways and then all of the major outlets um, uh, amazon and all that stuff uh, you know spotify but you know buy the buy the record though um absolutely <laughs> and uh you know because the on top of the just the music of course there's the booklet which is uh, 40 pages of of all the different research that i've yeah. had over the years including sources in the back so that people can can uh, you know backtrack and fact check me just in case you know and uh, and also the the wonderful uh, photography of uh, new stuff and old stuff that are that are featured on there hopefully we'll be um, featuring a, a a vinyl release uh, later in the year and that's yeah. something that I'm looking forward to as well because uh sequenced it for a, a wonderful gatefold two record set so yeah, you know keep an that. eye out for that as well that'd be good yeah absolutely <laughs> Dom thanks for being here it was a pleasure chatting with you and yeah. learning all these amazing and just fascinating things thank you oh it's my pleasure thank you so much right. it's NFL draft season and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.